Greetings, everybody. Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. And today I'm going to be speaking with Paul Austin, who is the founder and CEO of The Third Wave. I'll say more about them in a moment, but we're going to be speaking about how can we integrate, how can we combine psychedelics and coaching in order to enhance and deepen the transformational work that we do. We'll be really exploring how psychedelics can really increase the potency of any kind of transformational work. We'll talk about it from all different kinds of angles, macro dosing and micro dosing. How do we build safety into this kind of work? Why are psychedelics so important in opening us up to transformation? Uh, the different applications of psychedelics from healing to enhancing creativity to enhancing performance and how we can tailor our approach for different effects. We'll talk about mystical experiences and difficult experiences whilst we are journeying. And we'll talk about the training that Paul runs for coaches with the third wave and Paul's broader vision for why psychedelics are important in our time. So just to say a little bit more about the third wave. The third wave say we're entering a new psychedelic age where the focus isn't on dropping out or rejecting mainstream culture. It's about integrating intentional measured responsible psychedelic use into our everyday lives and their mission is to share trusted research-based content that helps people feel safe supported and empowered on their path towards personal transformation they have a great podcast and just to say a bit more about paul he founded the third wave in 2015 and he's dedicated to changing the culture and conversation around psychedelics influenced and inspired by his own early experiences with LSD and psilocybin mushrooms. His mission is to help legitimize psychedelic substances through the lens of intentional and responsible use. His work's been featured in the Rolling Stone, the New York Times, WebMD, and I just really appreciated the rigor that Paul brought to this podcast. So just before we dive in, if you are inspired to join our community, if you like this podcast and you want to stay in the loop about all the things we create which are not this podcast, you can head to coachesrising.com and scroll down the homepage there, find the sign-up box and sign up. You can also check out the offerings that we run, the training programs for coaches that we run there online. Let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Paul Austin. So Paul, it's uh, it's really cool to be with you today. First off, just how are you doing? I know you've been traveling a bit and stuff, so how's things? Yeah, things are good. It's it's early here. I'm in San Diego at the moment. So, you know, it's 8.15, having my morning coffee, did a little bit of journaling. And, you know, we had talked for uh, the, the podcast that I host a couple months ago. So it's nice to sort of turn the tables down and get a chance to talk to the, the Coaches Rising audience about psychedelics and coaching, which would be super fun. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting way to get to know someone, you know, like to do a, a podcast both ways. Um, and... You know, what I, what I appreciate is I was just saying to you in the check-in that I've been thinking about psychedelics and coaching for quite some time, you know, and um, but it kept popping up as a thought and then I didn't really pursue it that much. And then you reached out about your work and about me being on the podcast. So so this is fantastic. You know, I'm really excited to dive in today and talk to you about your work. You you have the third wave uh, as, as a company and you're a coach as well. So you, you work with people with psychedelics. And so we're going to just kind of, approach that topic from all angles and see really how psychedelics can enhance coaching. I think that's what a lot of people listening will be interested in. So maybe you could just say a little bit about your, you, you know, what you do. I know I've said a few things there, but you kind of, your journey into this, we'll, we'll keep this part a little bit briefer and then we'll, we'll talk about why psychedelics are 
you know, important in, in doing this kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on that note, you know, one of the most interesting things about these, these substances is their, their power for transformation. And, you know, there are probably people in your audience who have heard about psychedelics before, who have maybe even tried psychedelics before. And a lot of the, the sort of mainstream conversation, if you will, is really about the therapeutic and medical use of, of, of these substances. And yet these have been used for, for eons and eons, uh, you know, for, for transformation, for death and rebirth, for a lot of things that we'll get into today. And, I, and, and that's part of what informed my own story, you know, in, in getting into this. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a clinician. I'm not a, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a therapist. Um, I'm, I'm someone who loves history. I studied history in undergrad. I think the, the topic of history and how these, these patterns throughout time repeat themselves in, in, in different and various ways is super fascinating. And when I, um, when I first got into psychedelics, uh, there was this sort of whole pathway that opened up that I really wasn't anticipating. You know, I grew up in a reasonably sheltered, traditional home in, in the Midwest of the United States in a place called Michigan. Uh, I went to school in a place called Holland, which will be interesting for any Dutch listeners. Uh, there was a tulip time festival that we had every year. And, and while I was at, while I was in college, I had a chance to try high doses of, of psilocybin and, and LSD. And, uh, you know, one of the, the things that happens when we work with psychedelics is there's this sort of deconditioning process where we tap into a very sort of wild, and primal and undomesticated part of ourselves. And when I had that experience at the age of 19, you know, the, the, the maybe the core insight that I came away with from that was freedom, this, this feeling of freedom, this freedom of agency, um, this feeling of uh, being able to create and live as I wanna live was, uh, was a very central tenet in philosophy of, of who I was. And, and, and so I, I really landed on, Hey, I don't want to live a, a, a more conventional lifestyle. You know, I don't necessarily just want to graduate and work in a corporation or graduate and go get my MBA or, or, you know, just sort of live a normal life. I'd really like to do something unconventional. I'd really like to, to sort of explore, especially in my twenties and, and see what that means. And so at the age of 21, after graduating from undergrad, inspired by those early psychedelic experiences, I moved to Turkey uh, where I taught English for a year and started to really learn about teaching and education. And then a few years later, while living in, in Thailand, I was listening to a podcast that talked about microdosing. And uh, when I heard this podcast, I thought back to those early psychedelic experiences that I had with LSD and psilocybin at high doses. And I remembered, you know, you know, for a week or two weeks after those high dose experiences, I, I had this afterglow. Uh, feeling where life just felt a little smoother. It felt a little more flowy. Uh, I was able to meditate with more consistency. I was more mindful about the food that I ate. I was more attentive and social uh, and connected with friends and family. And then inevitably after three, four five weeks, that sort of ease would dissipate. And I would sort of, there would be small changes that had been made, but I would feel sort of like back to where I was prior. So when I heard about microdosing, I you know, thought, oh, this would be a great way to elongate that afterglow experience to make behavioral change easier on an ongoing basis. And that just happened to coincide with 
this was in 2015, so seven years ago. This happened to coincide with when psychedelics were starting to re-enter the mainstream. There was more research coming out about them. Uh, major podcast hosts were starting to talk about them publicly. And, and cannabis, which was a previously illicit substance, was becoming you know medicalized and even legalized in certain uh, states. And so I looked at the history of psychedelics back to back to history and thought, you know, if I could commit my energy uh, to one thing, it would be the mission of normalizing psychedelics in an intentional and responsible way, understanding that some of the mistakes that had happened in the 50s and 60s and the counterculture were, were sort of there was too much chaos and also understanding that, you know, we as humans had a rich, rich history with with these these substances, you know, we've been using them in ancient Greece, Plato and Aristotle and some of the major thinkers and philosophers were known to participate in something called the Eleusinian Mysteries. Uh, there's widespread indigenous use of psychoactive compounds in, in the Amazon, in India and many other locations. And so I really wanted to create this third wave of psychedelics and, and position psychedelics both as a tool of, of deep spirituality and deep wisdom uh, that we as humans have come back to again and again, but also as a, a cutting edge tool for behavioral change for, um, you know, shifting uh, uh, thought patterns for overcoming resistance and, and most importantly for growth and development leadership performance, uh, which sort of dovetails then into coaching and, you know, why I think these two are really powerful together. So I'll, 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 I'll pause there. Cause I know there's a, there's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, this, this, I can feel about 15 different questions arising at once. Um, the, I, I'm curious then, um, well, what, what, let, me, let me ask this, like there's so many questions, but what, what is it about psychedelics? You've alluded to that, you know, what you talked about when you were younger trying them and you felt this sense of deconditioning that took place and, and um, you know, entering this primal space and then the afterglow afterwards. And I recognize that from my own experiences growing up too. Uh, very formative. Um, and yet also sometimes questioning around like, how do I, how do I integrate this? But I'm just curious if you could speak a bit about what, what is it about psychedelics? And, and in a way, like we could maybe even say, what are we referring to when we mean psychedelics? Cause there, there might be different types of, psychedelics but what is it about them that you th that that is that is what's the impact it's having and and how come yeah yeah that's a great question and broad enough to to really really dive in deep so there's a few things there right one first what is a psychedelic and i think that's important to, to briefly discuss two then is um i'm going to talk through kind of what's the skill of psychedelics because that will then dovetail with what then, why are they effective tools for coaching? What do they help facilitate? What's going on from a neuroscientific perspective? What's going on from behavioral change perspective? Um, and I think that'll be a nice way to, 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 to weave all that in. So first of all, what is a psychedelic? Um, the most common classic psychedelics are LSD, psilocybin, and mescaline. Um, so LSD is a lysergamide. It was invented in 1938 by a Swiss chemist, Albert Hoffman. And LSD was the main psychedelic used in the 50s and 60s. Uh, it lasts about 12 hours in total. So it, it's much longer 
Um, it's one of the, the, more, the more intense psychedelics. And in the 50s, over a thousand clinical papers were published on the efficacy of LSD to treat a range of conditions from alcoholism to addiction to end-of-life anxiety. Um, psilocybin, which comes from psilocybin mushrooms, magic mushrooms, has a very similar uh, profile as LSD, but it lasts about half as long. It lasts six hours instead of 12 hours. And psilocybin is slightly more serotonergic, uh, meaning there's more serotonin produced, whereas LSD is more dopaminergenic. And I'm talking about that because that has an impact on um, the experience of it and, and the different use cases for it. And then the third one that I mentioned, mescaline, is the psychoactive that's found in Wachuma or San Pedro, as well as peyote. And mescaline is a phenethylamine. Uh, which is different than psilocybin, which is a tryptamine, and different than LSD, which is a lysergamide. And mescaline is a phenethylamine. It lasts for about 12 hours uh, as well. And it tends to bring up these classic psychedelic effects. And the classic psychedelic effects are essentially total ego dis dissolution, total ego death, and a, and a sense and a feeling of, of death and rebirth. Uh, and that really defines these classic psychedelics. And in addition to that, these classic psychedelics tend to act on something called the 5-HT2A receptor, which is one of 14 serotonin receptors, uh, which is tied a lot into executive functioning, functioning, decision-making, um, which we'll come back to later when we talk about psychedelics and, and leadership. So those are the three classic psychedelics. Now, some of your listeners probably have heard of ayahuasca. They also may have heard of 5-MeO-DMT. Um, these are also intense plant medicines, iboga is another one. So these are all known as psychedelics. And then two that are, 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 are medically becoming very well known are ketamine, which is legally available. Uh, ketamine is technically a disassociative, although it can be used in a psychedelic way uh, with PrEP and integration. And then MDMA. MDMA is technically an empathogen uh, because it really facilitates empathy and opens up the heart. But again, when used within a psychotherapeutic context or a coaching context, people would also consider MDMA a psychedelic. Um, I wish I had, we had more time because I would go more into sort of the details, but I think we should save some of that for potentially a, a future podcast. So MDMA and ketamine, when used within a certain context, could be considered psychedelic, although they're not the classic psychedelics. LSD, psilocybin, mescaline are the classic psychedelics. Then you also have ayahuasca and 5-MeO. And and the reason I bring all of those up is because when, you know, when your listeners as coaches in particular, think about the skill of psychedelics, the way that I, the way that I frame it is psychedelics are a tool, just like meditation, just like breath work, just like yoga, and they can be used uh, in more effective or less effective ways. And essentially the more skillful that we become at using psychedelics, both for ourselves and eventually for our clients, the more skillful we become at facilitating behavioral change, overcoming resistance, um, you know, this, this thing that really defines coaching as a, as a practice. And so the skill of psychedelics, I really look at sort of as um, macrodoses, microdoses, and non-psychedelic modalities. Um, and so when we're thinking about how we use psychedelics, right, sometimes uh, a high dose is necessary and important. Uh, going doing five grams of psilocybin mushrooms or going to the jungle and drinking ayahuasca. And macro doses are really good for what I would say, setting a new North Star, uh, reframing your compass, diving deep into the why of who you are, your purpose, your meaning, your mission. 
Microdosing, on the other hand, uh, you know, this is taking a very low dose of a psychedelic. Some might even say a subperceptible dose of a psychedelic. And unlike a macrodose, which is typically done maybe once every three to six months as a major paradigm shift, microdosing is done once or twice a week for a period of 30 or 60 days. And you're really looking at a consistent microdosing regimen as a way to facilitate behavioral change over that 30 or 60 day period. So earlier I talked about this afterglow effect and how I looked at microdosing as a way to elongate that afterglow effect. And so what it does is, is microdosing keeps that window of neuroplasticity open after let's say a high dose experience. And it almost acts as lubricant is the way that I frame it. It acts as lubricant for behavioral change to lower resistance and minimize resistance on an ongoing basis as things need to shift and, and change. And then of course there's non-psychedelic modalities. So if we do a macrodose, maybe once every three to six months, we do a microdose, maybe once or twice a week. It's always important that we as coaches, as facilitators, and the way that we work with clients is we frame it that it's important to have a daily practice, right? Meditation, daily, yoga, daily, breath work, daily, um, something that keeps us rooted in a ritual around um, connection, around presence, around dropping in. And that daily practice should not necessarily be psychedelic. Uh, should not necessarily be a substance that we're taking. It really should be something that is endogenous. It should be something that comes from within. Because when we look at psychedelics, and this is an important point to emphasize, we're not looking at how are we on, how are we taking a substance for the rest of our life? Really, we're using psychedelics as a catalyst, as a, as a shift to ultimately help us cultivate habits and behaviors that will last far beyond uh, the, the psychedelic experience. And that's also true for microdosing. You know, some, some people who critique microdosing say, you know, this, this could just be another pill that we are consistently on, that we're dependent on more psychologically than physiologically because psychedelics are not addictive. But microdosing could just be like an SSRI that we have to just take it consistently forever. And I think the, the, the thing to keep in mind within a coaching container is microdosing is a great um, temporary tool for 30 days, for 60 days, for 90 days, so to say but it needs to be used in such a way where certain behaviors and patterns are being cleared. Uh, certain behaviors and patterns are being integrated that are new, that support the, the well-being of that client. Like I said, meditation, I come back to again and again as, as a fundamental keystone habit that I think every um, coach and every even individual should really be practicing. But there are other things as well, like yoga and breath work that can be integrated on an ongoing basis. I'd love to ask you about how you would like kind of work with somebody if they come to you, but maybe first just to speak a bit more about the neuroscience, you know, like behind, behind the behavior change, like uh, if, if you could, like what it's doing to the plasticity in our brains, in our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. So what's happening when we take, I'll, I'll focus largely on the high doses of psychedelics because we have the most clinical research on what's happening in the brain. And then I'll talk about how that relates to likely what's going on with, with microdosing. Microdosing, you know, has only become a thing in the last five or six years. So it really is still in its infancy when it comes to research, largely because of all the red tape and bureaucracy, uh, because it's illegal in most places still. Um, but macrodosing, there's been a fair amount of research done. And I think the, the thing to root in 
and, and thinking about the neuroscience of macrodoses of psychedelics comes from um, a Dutch friend of mine, Mendel Kalin. Uh, Mendel was a, um, he, was, he did his PhD at Imperial College under uh, Dr. Robin Carr Harris, who's one of the premier uh, researchers in the psychedelic landscape. Mendel now runs uh, a startup called WavePass, which makes uh, specific music for psychedelic experiences. And Mendel's a neuroscientist. And he came up with this metaphor to describe what happens when we do a high dose of psychedelics that was then further popularized by Michael Pollan in his book, uh, How to Change Your Mind, published in 2018. And Mendel talked about how high dose psychedelic experiences, uh, the, the best metaphor in which to think about them is, is in, in normal everyday life, these, um, we have these ruts that we always follow, these behavioral patterns. Some way they mimic a ski hill, right? When we go up on a ski hill, there are all these paths and patterns that, you know, thousands and thousands of people have followed and, uh, before, before we've, we've been on those. And so naturally, we just follow those paths and those patterns. What a psychedelic does, a high dose of a psychedelic does, is it shakes up that snow globe or it dumps like an avalanche or a blizzard onto those paths and allows us to actually like fresh powder create new neural pathways through our brain that are not sort of rooted or rutted in these same patterns and behaviors that we've had before and with that new layer of snow as a result of that high dose of psychedelics we can then with more agency choose which path it is that we want to follow. Uh, our, our behaviors are not dictated as much by the past. So essentially it allows this sort of clean slate, if you will, um, tabula rasa is, is, is a way that they had put it, uh, a clean slate, which we can go, oh, now I feel like I have full choice over where it is that I wanna go. And my patterns and behaviors are not dictated by my past, by my unconscious, by the, by the stories for the last five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years of my life. Now, why that happens, I alluded to in, earlier in this interview, which is take these psychedelic compounds, we activate something called the 5-HT2A receptor, which is one of 14 serotonin receptors in the brain. It's related to executive functioning. And that 5-HT2A receptor is also related to the production of something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. And so when we take a psychedelic, we amplify the production of BDNF, which is a precursor for neuroplasticity. And so because of that production of BDNF, which is tied to the, the activation of this one serotonin receptor, the 5-HG2A receptor, we thus have sort of more charge, if you will, or more, um, more juice, if you will, to then have or feel more agency in sort of what it is that we want to create, where it is that we want to go, what it is that we want to do. Uh, so that's a very forward thinking that sort of gives some of the, the fundamental basics of, um, of neuroplasticity. And then, and then one other element to emphasize, I think, which will be helpful for your audience is, is talking about the, the default mode network, uh, because this ties into the, the snow globe, this ties into the 5-HT2A. So the default mode network is a part of our brain which allows us to daydream. It allows us to put things on default like our subconscious or on, our unconscious and automatically do them. Uh, and that default mode network, it's important, it's necessary. It's not like we're trying to get rid of it. However, a lot of people who are struggling with depression or addiction or anxiety or just 
who are overly neurotic or feel overly constricted, um, when we take a psychedelic, it interrupts that default mode network. It allows that default mode network to become less rigid. And so as a result of that, there's less rumination, there's less constriction. And so taking a psychedelic when it interrupts that default mode network allows us to reconsider our default behaviors. It allows us to rethink, to have a new perspective on, is are these things that I tend to do automatically, are they actually what serves me? Do I actually wanna continue to do these patterns and behaviors or do I wanna rethink that and choose something else, choose something new? Again, choose a new path that I'm following down the hill on the with, with the skis. And so um, interrupting that default mode network a neuroscientist thinks it's a it's, it's another key mechanism of action in terms of why psychedelics are really helpful at interrupting old patterns and actually weaving in new ways of being. So just like hearing that, you know, as a coach myself and all the coaches listening probably really get a sense of how much combining psychedelics can uh, with coaching can really enhance the power of the work, you know, because I think that's one thing there's always been a, a, a deep question for me and many people, of course, is like, how, what are the most effective ways to unlock deep transformation, to unlock behavior change and, and, and noticing how stubborn uh, and habituated we can be, you know, as human beings and, and for good reason, you know, like we're very, um, you know, we kind of get locked in certain behaviors um, that, that kind of perhaps bring a certain kind of, homeostasis or or normalcy but then they become deeply in you know in grooved into our lives and so yeah that's just what i'm reflecting back i'm like oh really i really hear how how much this could enhance any coaching work well and a lot of this is i'm glad you brought that up because a lot of it is what what allowed us to be safe in our childhood so to say what allowed us to be safe in our adolescence what adaptations did our personality sort of take on in order to survive. Uh, and, and so many of us now that we're into adulthood, we're not looking necessarily for survival. We're looking at what patterns and behaviors need to be let go of to really thrive. Um, now that we have a choice and we have agency and we're adults, you know, we're not necessarily um, dependent on or subject to uh, our parents or our teachers or whoever else, our siblings, right? And so I think that sense of safety then that speaks to the importance of the container that's created when we're working with clients is they need to feel totally safe and surrender in order to let go of some of those old things and, and welcome in the new, which I think we'll get, we'll get more into. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, I think we'll get, we'll get into this stuff. And um, what I want to ask is, is about, um, do you always recommend like combining macro and micro dosing, like I guess I want to ask you in just a second, like how how do you work with your clients? You know, um, uh, how how might we approach different people that come to us? You know, or how might we respond to them? But the prior to that is this question of: Would you always advocate somebody to do a macro dose? You know, to get this north star, this this resetting type experience. Um, and then microdose, or would would some people would it be like okay, no, a microdosing protocol might be enough here. It, it, it's like going to kind of tune into your practice you've currently got and enhance your performance. I'm just curious about that. Yeah, 
Yeah, so so much of coaching is the personalization of the experience for the client that we're working with, right? Which really requires us to truly listen to where it is that client is, where they're at, what they need, where they're going, and and then to guide them based on our know-how and expertise into that person that they want to become, right? And so that that really means that that deep listening then will, will facilitate w- what is that right decision to make for the client that I'm, that I'm working with. And this is why we even have the training program that we have at Third Wave, because a lot of people see psychedelics as p- potent tools for transformation, which they are, but there, I don't think there's always enough respect given to how individualized that approach needs to be based on where the client's at. And so there's, there's so much context then to consider because um, especially with psychedelics, it's always going to depend on where the client's at. So, so just to back out even a little bit from your question, and I will get into macrodosing or microdosing or, you know, is there, is there a prescription? Is there a one size fits all? Is, is it, is it different? I think, the, the con, there, there's a number of contextual things to keep in mind when, when potentially working with clients. And we cover all of these in, in depth and detail in our, our training program as well. The, the first thing is, you know, is your client brand new to psychedelics? Have they ever worked with psychedelics before? Um, do they have prior use maybe in their teens at festivals? Have they been to any ceremonies, anything like that? So that's, that's number one is what's their understanding of psychedelics? Um, how much experience do they have with psychedelics? The second thing that builds on that is how much experience do they have with, with non-duality? So even if they've never done psychedelics before, have they maybe gone to a Vipassana or have they done breath work, you know, transformational breath work or holotropic breath work? Have they, you know, participated in Ashtanga yoga? You know, like what is their practice with contemplative uh, ways of being and do they have some sort of background in that as well another consideration is you know what's their trauma profile so to say have they have they dealt with adverse childhood experiences in the past have they struggled with depression or ptsd or addiction of some sort have they been on pharmaceutical medications like ssris or and you know benzodiazepines or antipsychotics you know um framing that and understanding that is also going to be context for for where one starts and then i think the 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 a fourth consideration and maybe a final consideration is you know what's the what do they want you know are they are they open and interested in in psychedelics and microdosing what you don't want to do is is feel like you're sort of convincing a client that this would be helpful for them. I, th- I think as a coach, it's helpful to educate. It's helpful to sort of provide the facts from an objective perspective. But at the end of the day, especially for something like psychedelics, you want that client to be able to make a decision for themselves about what's best for them. And so what that might mean is, let's say for a client who is brand new to psychedelics, you know, maybe they've started to do some sort of mindfulness meditation practice. They read a book by John Kabat-Zinn, and they've started to meditate for 10 or 15 minutes a day, uh, or they downloaded the Waking Up app by Sam Harris or Headspace or whatever. They've never done a psychedelic. Maybe they're still on an SSRI, uh, like a Zoloft or a, or a Prozac. You know, maybe microdosing would be a really great place to start for them. Um, so they can sort of start to get a sense of how that feels and what that feels like and what impact it might have. 
um, and then dialing that microdosing in, that's what we call calibration, right? For some folks, it could be 100 milligrams of psilocybin. For some folks, it could be 250. For some folks, it could be 500, right? So the specific dose level then will also defer based on the client's history, based on, you know, their level of neuroticism, based on whether or not they're on an SSRI, based on, you know, their intention and goal, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If you have a, if you have a client who, you know, maybe they tried a psychedelic before they've watched Michael Pollan's docu-series on Netflix, or they've read about the research of high doses, they're going through a period of transition, a period of liminality where they're really questioning kind of their past and looking for clarity on what's to come. Then it could be that a high dose is, is, is a great place to, to start at, that that high dose is they feel comfortable, they feel like they're, they're good to surrender, they still might need some preparation going into that high dose experience. Uh, but then doing a, an experience with them where it might be three to four to five grams of psilocybin could be beneficial. Oftentimes, even before psilocybin, I'll start clients with MDMA uh, who are brand new to psychedelics because MDMA is uh, the likelihood of them having a challenging experience, the likelihood of them experiencing paranoia or anxiety is much lower with MDMA compared to even something like psilocybin. So oftentimes newbies, if you will, um, it's good to start them just with MDMA. And then, and then maybe on a second one, if we do a second experience, I might combine psilocybin with MDMA as, as, as sort of a combination of that. It's called M&M or the hippie flip or whatever else you want to put on it. And that combination you get sort of the crispness and the clarity of the psilocybin, the classic psychedelic about vision and purpose, but you also get the softness and the heart opening of the MDMA, which helps them to stay grounded and rooted throughout the experience. Um, and then after that, I might have them microdose, you know, once a week or twice a week, depending on their goal, it could be psilocybin or it could be LSD that I have them microdose with. So I know there's a lot there, but I think to come back to sort of the, the, the core teaching point, uh, it, it always depends. The context will be dependent on their prior experience with psychedelics and contemplative practices, uh, whether or not they have significant trauma or they've healed some of that trauma or they're on a class or on an SSRI, and then just their current comfort level and what they really want to dive into. I think those three considerations are key when we're looking at that intersection of coaching and psychedelics and, and client work. Yeah, I really appreciate that answer. You know, the, the yeah, it's not just um, one size fits all and, you know, let's do this, let's dive straight in, but it's really calibrated to the to the person that's coming to you. And, you know, just on that note of trauma and SSRIs and things like that, would you, because, you know, I can imagine psychedelic journeys can be very, very potent in working with trauma. And I'm sure there's a lot that's going on a lot, isn't it, right now? And there's lots of research being done. And I guess this might lead to that question of like coaching therapy and the different roles. But, um, yeah, do, do you recommend that? Yeah, I guess that's that's the real question, isn't it? So we're talking here about training coaches, um, not therapists. So would you recommend a coach therefore to probably know the answer to this, but you know, if they feel like this person might be quite traumatized that they shouldn't do a ceremony with them and seek therapeutic assistance. Yeah. Yeah. How do we navigate that landscape? Right. Cause there's no yeah. clear cut answer. I'll, I'll be honest. And then I know 
coaches without a clinical background who do deep therapeutic work and they're incredible right. at it. Yeah. And I also know clinicians who have years of clinical experience and they feel like doing work with psychedelics would be totally out of their, their wheelhouse. So a lot of what it comes down to, I find, is the development of the coach or the therapist uh, themselves, um, the humility and the depth of that individual, I think is key. Because what we have to remember is as a coach or a therapist or a practitioner or a facilitator is we are not isolated. In other words, the, the strength of our network as a coach or facilitator or therapist guide, whatever it is, is also the strength of our facilitation or coaching from, from my perspective. Because there will always be you know, clients who are not a great fit for you. And so if you can refer them out to a coach in your network or a guide or a therapist or a facilitator, then you're helping that individual to continue to take the next step in their path. Furthermore, there might be a coach or there might be a client that's a great fit for you as a, as a, as a coaching client, but let's say they do have you know PTSD or they do have some sort of uh, traumatic experience that needs to be healed. And you feel as if, you know, you feel as a coach that, you know, it's out of your wheelhouse, so to say, that, that, that you're relatively new to psychedelics, that you don't necessarily feel comfortable uh, going into those really deep spaces with psilocybin with someone who has uh, that level of trauma. But you have a close friend or you have someone in your professional net network who does feel comfortable with that, you know, a guide or a shaman or a facilitator or a therapist where you can simply refer them out to that individual to have that experience. Maybe even you as a coach still are there present with them, but you also have the support of someone who feels safe and comfortable in that space. Um, so like my last answer is, is it really, it, it depends. I think the most important thing then is how honest can we be with ourselves as coaches, as facilitators, um, with, with, with the North star being the safety, I think, most importantly, the safety of the client when it comes to psychedelics, and then secondarily, the transformation of that client um, on the on the sort of back end of that. Because I know plenty of people, not plenty, sorry, that's an exaggeration. I know people who have gone through psychedelic work and came out the other side worse off than how they went in, right? Uh, this is less the case with psilocybin. I've often heard this with 5-MeO-DMT because it is so potent and powerful. But it still happens with psilocybin, with LSD, with ayahuasca, where someone will be really gung-ho about going into a psychedelic experience. Maybe they'll even be working with a coach or a facilitator. And there's a lot of stuff that comes up that that coach or facilitator just isn't trained enough to know how to handle and, and transform. And so they end up worse for the wear for a week, for two weeks, for a month, for potentially six months after that, because some form of re-traumatization has happened in the depths of that psychedelic experience. So that's why, you know, throughout this podcast, it really safety is number one, always when we're working with psychedelics, feeling like that container is safe, serving the needs of the client to ensure that they remain safe. And then, and then checking in with ourselves around what am I actually capable of? Uh, because there's no, you know, I talked about our training program. There are many other training programs out there as well, but there's no amount of theoretical knowledge and learning that will prepare you for what comes up 
in a psychedelic experience. In other words, the only way to, to, to get that experience is, and this is what we always emphasize. First, you go through that experience yourself. Uh, you, 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 you take that MDMA, you do those mushrooms, you go on the ayahuasca retreat, you smoke the 5-MeO DMT as the coach or facilitator yourself, because you need to know that landscape in order to guide a client through it. And then it's simply supporting, facilitating, being there, whether it's on retreats or in one-on-one enough times to know sort of what might come up in this psychedelic experience for a client. Um, and that could take, you know, I've been working with psychedelics for 13 years now, 12 or 13 years, and I'm still learning nuances around it. Um, and, and, and that's the trade-off of working with something that's so powerful and so volcanic is the, the, uh, the, the number of permutations, if you will, of what could happen within a psychedelic experience is endless you'll never be able to handle all of them. And I think that's another important thing to emphasize is this is not a space to be in if you want to have all the answers because there is so much uncertainty and there is so much mystery when it comes to psychedelics. And yet we can certainly train ourselves to have enough depth and hold enough of a container that can allow for the complexity of of whatever emerges. And at the end of the day, as a coach, as a facilitator, as a guide, as a therapist, regardless of the external credentials that that are associated with you, it comes down to how well can you listen? How well can you hold space? How present can you be? How compassionate can you be? How loving can you be? And most importantly, how clear of a mirror can you, how clean can you be when you go into that space? Because psychedelics are such amplifiers, when you go into an experience, there's a heightened level of sensitivity And so anything that feels off within you, the client will immediately be able to pick up on. Even if it's not conscious, they'll immediately be able to pick up on. And so when going into any sort of container, it's really, really important that we as a coach, as a facilitator, as a guide, keep a very clean vessel ourselves. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. You know, I I was kind of wondering, are there these like principles that, yes, there's a kind of million different varieties of experience that could arise within a within a journey within a a ceremony but there are kind of like these principles that you're describing that that are universal perhaps you know like just being able to listen hold space like have have a presence that's uh, compassionate and uh, embracing in some sense and 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 like you're you know there's a there's um you, you you've done your own deep work so you're clean you know like you're not projecting or leading your client in certain ways that are actually representations of your own unresolved work. So, uh, you know, th- th- and that those are going to really, you know, those are foundational. And then, and then there's a bunch of stuff that comes from experience. And, you know, just thinking out loud here, I can imagine even with these uh, more difficult experiences that may arise, you know, like that they can be incredibly transformational, you know, like um, if, if held in the right way. And, and again, with that caveat of always, you know, always knowing, you know, where your limits are and, and, and being, being responsible and, and, and being safe. But at the same time, it's those, those disturbing experiences perhaps can be, can be some of the most transformational if, if held in the right way. One, and I'm glad you brought that up because that is really what defines psychedelics as effective tools compared to 
let's say even SSRI. So as we're looking at psychedelics as, as a tool for therapeutic use, SSRIs tend to blunt our experience, which means they're helpful for short-term suicidality or other issues, whereas psychedelics allow a, allow a catharsis is really what you're, what you're speaking to. And that catharsis is why psychedelics are being seen as, I hesitate to use the word cures, but they're essentially addressing issues at the core, at the root rather than sort of masking over them. And this of course comes back into shadow work, right? So even though we're talking about coaching and psychedelics, we're talking about, you know, we haven't gotten fully into this, but how, why are psychedelics so great for leadership, for performance, for creativity, for vision, for communication? There's always going to be shadow work done. Even in my own experience, you know, when I talked about doing LSD and psilocybin when I was 19 and 20, I, was not clinically depressed. I've never been on an SSRI. I've never been medicated. I've never been, you know, clinically labeled as whatever. And yet I still had a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of other emotions that I had repressed as a result of living, a, uh, growing up in a sheltered, more traditional religious home in, in West Michigan. And so when I first did psychedelics, I was like, oh my gosh, all this stuff that I didn't look at for years and years and years is coming up. And that's natural and inevitable. And so how can you as a coach, as you mentioned, hold the space for that shadow work? Because healing is inevitable. Um, it's, it's sort of seen as the, the digging of the foundation that we need to really grow to the full person that we're becoming and hold the container for the shadow work while still orienting the client towards growth, development, perspective, inspiration, right? It really is. And that's why I see coaching as you're really holding space for the both and, you know, healing and transformation. And that requires a lot of um, experience and complexity. I mean, I, I think you, I couldn't agree with you more here. They're almost like two, for me, two sides of the same coin or something that healing is transformation and, and vice versa. I know in my own life and um, I've seen this in, the field itself of like, it's always about reaching for transformation. There's an ascending kind of bias and actually um, there, there's, there's, there's some good in that, of course, but that actually a lot of real transformation emerges out of that, a descent, you know, the, 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 the um, uh, it, it's because it, because the ascending is then built on, not built on the right foundation, you know? So it's that descent into um you know, in, in mythological terms, whatever they call it, like the the hero's journey or the the underworld, but uh, that place where we're able to meet ourselves. And um, I'm imagining, and this is what I'm curious about, that that psychedelics can then create a, that kind of perspective shift. You know, which I remember for me came. I did I did mushrooms and psychedelics. They grew on the in the fields around where I lived. You know, and nice. so we would just go out picking them, and we were completely naive, but. At the same time, it really had a beautiful impact. You know, we had some bad experiences, but, you know, the bunch of like working class Northern English boys like taking mushrooms and opening to these, this is quite a magical experience. But what I'm remembering particularly was like being in a nightclub on MDMA and for the, like you described feeling suddenly like, holy shit, I feel, I feel good about myself. I feel, I feel great love of myself in this moment. Great compassion. What a, what a great guy I am and incredibly potent experiences. And so, so I think I'm just weaving this in about what do you, what do you think about that? And for me, a lot of transformation has emerged out of that kind of healing space rather than 
uh, as a compensation, which it can become sometimes for 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 that sense of deficiency. So. I love this. So I, I, I'm just writing down a few notes. Uh, one is there's a body worker that I have seen a couple times um, who does phenomenal work. Uh, he's been doing this for 50 years. And last time I went to see him, he had this phrase, which was transformation, not transcendence. You know, and 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 the the, the that kind of came about because you know, he knows that a lot of people, particularly in the, the plant medicine and psychedelic space, like you said, they're always reaching for that ascent, 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 that transcendence. And yet so much of the productive work that we can do is, is in the shadow, it's in the depths, it's in the body, right? It's in, in, that, in that somatic experience. So to go into that, uh, to transform rather than simply transcend is, is where real growth and development comes from. And, and you also mentioned the descent versus ascent. And, and you know, I, I think of um, mastering leadership, which I know you, I think you've had Bob Anderson on the, the podcast. He talks about that, that descent and ascending current as central to integral leadership, right? And the, the leaders who can, who can both descend into the shadow, who can sit with that, but also come out of that and, and ascend. And they have ability to do that both and, can then show up as, as integrated, as integrated leaders. And, and so when it comes to, let's say, psychedelics and plant medicine, you know, and, and how we hold the space for that, it, it really is understanding that healing is inevitable, that we need to allow space for it, um, and that we need to hold clients accountable to not bypass these challenges or issues that they may need to face. And I think this is particularly true for, let's say those in executive leadership positions um, where there may be a um, tendency to compensate for trauma in workaholism. There may be a tendency to compensate for uh, a lack of self-worth in uh, productivity and uh, financial well-being. And so I think when it comes to, let's say, that intersection of psychedelics and leadership, psychedelics and performance, you know, there may be someone, there may be a client, if there are any executive coaches listening to this, there may be a client who comes to you who says, yeah, I'm interested in, you know, doing X, Y, and Z, being a better leader, a better communicator, having more vision, challenging, addressing this challenging issue, figuring out how to get my team to better gel up, et cetera, et cetera. And then once you get into it, you'll come to realize that, um, that there's maybe a, a deep sense of, of, of self-worth uh, that's lacking there. There's, there's maybe a sense of not feeling good enough, or there's a sense of you know, not feeling connected enough to their family. Uh, we, we had this experience when I was doing these legal psilocybin retreats in the, in the Netherlands through synthesis, where people would come in, it was a wellness retreat. They'd come in saying, yeah, I want to figure out X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, my next career path or this leadership challenge that I've been kind of navigating. And then they do a high dose of the psychedelic. And then they remember, oh, really what matters most is, you know, my family. What matters most is my health. What matters most is these fundamental basics that we often try to bypass or ascend out of. And at the end of the day, what psychedelics remind us is that we can't, right? That, that health, that relationships, that our connection to nature, these are fundamental tenets of a well-being and that those need to be cultivated and taken care of if we are to grow and develop into this kind of ideal person that we want to become. Hmm. I actually want to build on that. And well, actually, let me, there's, there's one question that I want to ask, which is kind of like personal and, and um, 
also I'm curious about. Um, and I think that it can tie into like what we're kind of moving into now is, is which is like, I'm interested in, um, yeah, integration and, and like the types of insights that might come out of experiences and then, and then how that gets integrated in people's lives. But, um, what, what do you recommend for, I mean, this is, I'm talking mainly about, uh, the, the participant here, but say they are in a, in like, they've taken a high dosage of, of, um, uh, psychedelic and they're experiencing fear maybe they're in that phase of like um they're in that perhaps they're 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 about to cross a threshold you know into that kind of transcendent state but there's parts kicking in who are afraid terrified um what 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 would you recommend to somebody in that place and or what would how would you train a coach maybe the coach isn't there but it's maybe it's a guide or a shaman but yeah in those moments what what's uh because I think that's a profound. It can be a profound experience, can't it? Of of like surrendering to to the to the experience. And a lot of it comes down to the preparation and how you frame that experience, right? So, as a coach, if you're working with a client where this is their first psychedelic experience, they're working with psilocybin, let's say, or even MDMA. There's inevitably difficult material that may come up right? Uh, around grief, around sadness, around loss, around anger, around anxiety, around whatever it is. The way you prepare that client and the way you frame that experience is, is critical. Because if there's a priming that's done beforehand around the importance of surrender, around the importance of letting go, around the importance of allowing whatever emotion needs to be felt to be felt, right? Or, and, and this is particularly true for even those in leadership positions because, or those in, in more performative positions, because so often we're conditioned or taught to repress, 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 right? Tuck it away, put it, put it away for later. We got to show up. We got to be productive. We got to perform. We got to whatever. And so that, that ability, right? That permission to allow whatever needs to come up is so central. And then when you're, when, when we're in the, the throes of the actual experience, what I always emphasize is breath, right? Always come back to the breath, always come back to the breath, always come back to the breath, right? That, that sense of constriction, that sense of paranoia, that sense of anxiety, of, of getting the loop, of spinning out, so to say, often comes because the energy is getting too stuck in the upper chakras, so to say. And so when we're in that throes of a difficult psychedelic experience, it always is, how do we come back? to our breath? How do we come back to our gut? How do we come back to our, uh, you know, uh, our root chakra, so to say, and root in that root in the body root in the somatic experience. And so this even comes into like, if we have a client who's in the throes of a psychedelic experience, and they're, and, and they're clearly facing some difficult material, and they're starting maybe to spin out, that sense of physical touch could be really helpful and important for them, that, you know, doing some body work, bringing them back into their physical space, moving a little bit, you know, going out into nature. Um, all of those things can be helpful to help the client remember that they can slow down, they can breathe, they can go back into their body, they can feel all those shitty feelings that they were never able to feel, and they can most importantly release all of those, right? They can have that catharsis. They don't need to continue to hold on to it and repress it because that is in many ways what's probably caused their suffering for, you know, weeks or months or years or decades or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. 
Yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm glad you share that. And, um, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad we've like included the, the, the kind of, you know, what can be difficult or intense in these um, experiences and, uh, you know, that we, safety is emphasized and, and yet, you know, also um, like you're saying, you know, um, people are, are experiencing something that's been perhaps repressed and that's, that's actually taken great energy to repress that emotion and, and it's limited their experience of life. And so, um, so I'm hearing that, the, the, again, there's this catharsis, yeah, like there's actually, there's gold on the other side and, um, um, you, you know, that staying with the ceremony itself, and we can also talk about the micro dosing afterwards, would, would you, um, would a coach, and this might be good where like you can have a coach or a guide and a shaman, there's different roles, but would a, would you recommend then that someone might intervene and, and guide the participant in a particular place is it always about just helping them be where they are? And like you said, you know, kind of like really stay close to your experience and allow allow it to unfold in whatever way it wants and insights might occur or, you know, um, just kind of realizations kind of show up or, you know, maybe it's just just pure, pure kind of emotional catharsis or integration. Yeah, I'm just curious if there's a question in there, you might pick one out, but. Um, yeah, well, I, I think kind of what you're hitting at is the role of intuition mm. in, in, in a coaching practice, right? Or not even a coaching practice, but in a, in a specific psychedelic container where if a coach, as we talked about before, if a coach feels ready to step into that space with a client, part of them feeling ready is being very in touch with, with their own intuitive capacity. Because knowing, you know, when, like, I, I can, I can kind of give some again, universal principles of breathe and maybe physical touch and a little bit of movement and reminder of surrender and a reminder of allowance. But at the end of the day, when a coach is in that container with a specific client, maybe someone they've worked with for a month or three months or six months or a year, even someone they might have a very already, um, I don't want to use the word intimate, but like uh, there, there is a deep sense of connection there already. They know that client well they might know then at that precise moment in time, what is that best thing to do for the client to get that thing to release, to have that catharsis, to transform that shadow into gold. And this, this just comes from experience. It comes from, you know, trust. It comes from um, the relationship building that's been done as well. And that's why I think it's, it's, you know, if we're looking at kind of back to the question around, a coach versus a guide versus a therapist versus a shaman. You know, if there are any coaches that are listening to this who maybe have some experience with psychedelics, they may very well feel qualified to um, prepare a client to even help that client integrate. But if they don't feel qualified to help them have that experience, that handoff is actually really key and really important because they've built so much trust with that client over the past, however long if they're going in to have a psychedelic experience with another facilitator or guide, that coach needs to make sure that facilitator or guide is, is, is the, is a good fit for their client. They need to make sure there's a sense of trust that's been built there. They, I mean, a lot of the best coaches that I know will simply, they will still be in ceremony with the guide and the client themselves to make sure that everything goes smooth. So um, there's a lot of nuance within that. And, and I think what I come back to is intuition, trust, uh, the, the intimacy of that, that, that relationship, uh, of course, non-romantic, non-sexual, just the, the, the level of connection and bonding there is, 
and then kind of knowing what to do based on what you think might be most helpful for that client at that point in time. Yeah, that's that's fits, and I think this this will uh, speak to coaches anyway. You know, like perhaps it's these are skills coaches are deploying in any coaching session. You know, like you you learn. Uh, you, you could you develop your felt sense, your perceptivity, kind of pattern recognition, all these kind of intuitive uh, skills that then then are playing out in this level of mastery that can develop of, of knowing what you know just the right kind of acupuncture point might be for somebody in that moment, you know that just that right touch that supports them on their journey more and. Um, so, so just to, uh, you know, I, I do want to ask you about your program in a moment, and and as we're kind of moving towards the end of our conversation, and it does feel like there's there's so much we can talk about, but a lot of richness, here, uh, so, yeah. so much more, yeah. Um, this this before we do that though, integration, you know, like yeah, what what's important in integration basically? Because that was always for me always like a, you know. I think think the world has changed a lot now. Like I said, when I was a teenager doing it, there was just no, you know, we were just trying to get our rocks off, you know, and so right. there was no consciousness. And then inevitably on the side, you had some some you know a mystical experience or some sort of profound insight that you weren't maybe expecting to have. And like, holy shit, changed my life, right? You know, yeah. Um, Which shows that but, even but, if if yeah. it, you know like. Even if you weren't necessarily super intentional about that, they still have that potent and, and, and potency, that power, right? So if that container is created with intention with a client, imagine what could happen. Yeah, integration, yeah. right? We could let's let's talk a little bit about about that. What is integration? What is it to integrate? Um, the the word that I often come back to is wholeness. I think that's a good that's a good word to anchor in on for any coaches who are listening to this wholeness. What's the sense of feeling whole? What's the sense of feeling complete? What's the sense of feeling like all aspects of who you are are integrated, are 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 part of you? Um, because when we when we work with let's say a high dose of a psychedelic and we have this quote unquote mystical experience, which we haven't really talked about much yet, but I think it's worth going into that a little bit. Um, yeah, in research, do. yeah, yeah, and research done in 2006 at Johns Hopkins, they showed that psilocybin could facilitate a quote unquote mystical experience, which is connection to source, connection to God, connection to something beyond. And as a result of having that mystical experience, there were all these incredible downstream effects, um, you know, on mood, on behavior, on compassion, on uh, self care, on a number of other. A number of other things. Now, why that is, the way that I describe it is we as humans almost never in our lives have felt unconditional love, right? From our parents, there was always conditions on the love. From our community, there were always conditions on that love. From our friends, there were always conditions on that love. Rarely have we ever felt unconditional love. And, and so having this experience of psychedelics, this mystical experience, with ayahuasca or psilocybin or LSD or 5-MEA, whatever it is, it's oftentimes the first experience of unconditional love. And so when we have that experience of unconditional love, there are all these insights that come through about the way that we treat ourselves, right? The, the, the sort of the, the way that we perceive ourselves, 
the way that we treat because of the way that we treat ourselves, the way that we treat our friends, the way that we treat our family, the way that we treat our, our environment, right? If we're not complete and whole and, and have a sense of deep love within ourselves, that, that can't emanate outward. And yet when, when we work with a psychedelic, it is that feeling. And so oftentimes when people come out of it, they're like, what are all these ways that I'm not cultivating a sense of deep sort of love within myself? What are all these ways I'm not cultivating a sense of deep love for my, for my spouse, for my partner, for my kids, for my family, for my friends, for my environment, for my community, for my work, for my business. And so the process then of integration is after having this or these aha moments of holy shit, you know, here are all the gaps or here are all the ways I'm not doing this. What are the things that we choose to commit to as a path, as a habit, as a behavior? So that way, this, this experience that we have with psychedelics isn't just another drug experience, but it's, a, it's an experience that actually creates lasting behavioral change, right? Um, there's a great phrase that I like, which is, which is altered states lead to altered traits, I think it might have been a Ken Wilber phrase. I can't, I can't remember precisely, mm. but altered yeah, yeah. states lead to altered traits, right? But they only lead to altered traits if we put in the work afterwards to ensure that those aspects of ourselves, those, those insights become integrated. So as, a, as an example to sort of root this, let's say we, we have this mystical experience, we have this high dose experience and we come to realize as a very basic example, that the way the food that we eat is toxic, it's poisonous, it's unhealthy. We come to realize that, you know, processed food or soda that we drink, or even the cigarettes that we smoke is another example, are, are they're, they're poisoning us. And that to really take that next step in our growth and evolution, we need to eliminate cigarettes, we need to cut out all processed food and we need to start eating things that are more nourishing for us. Well, then the, the, the focal point of that integration for the, let's say four weeks after that high dose psychedelic experience would be to totally get off cigarettes or to eat no processed food whatsoever, right? To make a commitment of, let's say one, I like to keep it limited. So one behavioral choice in that sort of, um, in that, 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 that time period that comes after for three, four, five, six weeks that will fundamentally lead to a better life on an ongoing basis. And it's important, I wanna emphasize this, it's important not to make too many changes because although we have all these insights and awareness that come through on psychedelics, if we try to change too many things at once, there's this sort of rubber band effect where for maybe a couple of weeks, we have all this energy and motivation and inspiration to change all of these things. But then at the end of those two, three weeks, it becomes way too much to hold and the whole house of cards comes crashing down. So this is, a, this is why I come back to coaching and accountability is so central because if you have a client who is going through this, it's your role as a coach to know how far to stretch them without stretching them too far with an understanding that if you stretch them too far, all of that work that you've done may come crashing down and keeping that North star, that long-term vision in mind that this isn't do as much as quick as possible, but this is, if we're on a five-year journey of change and transformation, what's that thing we can do in the next month that's going to serve the client in the best way possible for that person that they are becoming in the next three to four to five years.
and presumably, you know, just to, to flesh out this example, so that's really helpful what you shared there. Um, you know, it could be that somebody gets like a, a major insight into like making a change in their life, you know, like actually uh, I, this, this job I'm in right now is not, is not right for me, you know, and I'm, I, I've clarified the, this purpose, you know, a new level of purpose that I want to step into um, or, or, you know, a, a leader may, I'm, and I'm curious what you think, like a leader might, um, you know, have one of these kind of experiences of unconditional love and in a way that, that there's a kind of release of perhaps like a, 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 a part or a defense that was showing up in the way they're leading the team. And suddenly they can start to show up with their team in a, in a, from a place of great wholeness as well. So I'm, just, I'm, I'm imagining there's a myriad of kind of uh, outcomes. That is what I was talking to earlier, which is even when we're working with executive leaders, let's say, to, to bring back that example, they may come in to a coaching container thinking that they need support or help with X, Y, and Z. And it may, be, it, it, it may behoove you as a coach to keep them focused on that vision, that sense of teamwork, that sense of whatever. And yet, what you may find is that what is actually going to help get them there the most is to have that catharsis, is to do that shadow work, is to clear that repressed emotion or that repressed story or that traumatic whatever. And that by clearing that, that will just naturally create more space and they can and they can just unfold into whatever they need to unfold into. Right. So I think that as a coach, then it's like it's again, it's the balancing point of when we work with clients, they may think they need one thing when in fact they need another thing. And how do we both hold the the sort of fragility of their ego, if you will, while also bringing them through a really transformative process of, of healing and transformation and depth. So they come out on the other side and go, holy shit, I didn't know I needed that. But now that we've gone through with that, wow, like you have totally changed my life. You have totally changed my business. You have totally changed the way that I relate. And I think that that's one of the the potentials when we work with psychedelics is that is that wow effect, which which we want as coaches, right? Like what what every coach wants is to make a dramatic impact on the lives of their clients. And what better way to do that I find than, than some of this deep, um, you know, psychedelic work uh, and again, a safe, safe container with all the things that we talked about so far. Yeah. And, you know, maybe this is a good place to, to ask you about your training. Cause just to say, I, you know, I, I, I feel we haven't talked about this at all, but um, you know, right now I think we, we, we need all, um, hands on deck in terms of um, you know the state of the world and the the crises we face and um, the 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 call for for deep transformational work you know to to um, to move into greater wholeness as human beings to to uh, move into more mutually beneficial types of relationships and and relationship with the planet and. Um, it just seems to me everything you're saying and that psychedelics can be uh, a very potent support in that endeavor. And that actually, you know, um, is it uh, Terence McKenna, you know, Food of the Gods? I remember reading that book when I was 
um you know my mum bought it for me when i was like 18 um nice. but and and i got i don't know it's been a long since i read it so i don't know how it fits with the the latest thinking and science around the development of consciousness itself but the, what i'm getting at is there's a real history isn't there you you said this at the start there's such a history uh of our relationship with psychedelics and the formative impact that they've had on us as, as human beings and it's a really important work you know i just want to say like i've really 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 appreciated listening to you it's very obvious mm-hmm. the 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 that you've immersed yourself in this work and that you you bring a lot of credibility for me to to this work you know and and um you know your 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 willingness to speak about all aspects of it and emphasize the the, the safety aspect and so I'm I'm just really pleased to be sharing this with our community and and I know um like you you have some time like let's speak about your training program for coaches because you know I I think it's really worth letting people know about that and and what you do so could you could you do that yeah totally thank you Joel I appreciate that that invitation so interconnectedness I wrote down you know holistic systems we talk about integrated systems I know this has probably been a common topic on the podcast in terms of what is that overlap between leadership um, and and dealing with the existential crisis that we seem to be facing as, as humanity. And, you know, when I first got involved in this work in 2015, you know, for me personally, what I was most inspired by is we have what seems to be a, a condensed period of time. Uh, in which we can make changes to address some of the existential crises that we're that we're facing. That psychedelics are very effective tools, and they create almost immediate transformation of use within a safe and responsible container. And that if we could transform the consciousness and the awareness of those in leadership positions who are responsible for creating the new systems that we will live in then that was our that would be our greatest hope to addressing the existential crisis and i go back to ken wilber um who in the this book called the religion of tomorrow uh, which i don't i didn't read all of because ken just <laughs> writes and writes and writes and writes but I, I i read at least a couple hundred pages of it and he draws a parallel between um what happened during the enlightenment and what's happening now. And, and, and the parallel is, is important. And I'll, I'll talk about how it relates to the coaching program uh, very briefly, but the parallel was during the enlightenment to make a shift from the dark ages into this Renaissance and this enlightenment. It wasn't that 100% of people had to immediately become literate. It was that the top 10%, so to say, had to become literate. And then they would then create the systems necessary to ensure widespread literacy across the globe. Right. And so when the printing press happened and, you know, we, we then had the Renaissance and enlightenment after that. And then we had this whole academic and university system that came about as a result. And Wilbur is drawing a parallel between that and what's going on um, today with consciousness, let's say, and he doesn't talk explicitly about psychedelics, but he's talking more about awakening, if you will. And and his point is we don't need everyone to wake up necessarily. But if we get 10% of people to wake up to the truth and nature of reality, which is this truth of interconnectedness, then they will create the systems necessary for everyone else to also sort of immerse into that true felt experience, even if they're not doing high doses of psychedelics. 
And it's interesting, you know, I read that in 2018, probably a few years later, I was reading Terrence McKenna and he was, it was a transcript of a talk that he was giving at the Esalen Institute. Um, and, and Ralph Metzner, who's another OG in the psychedelic space from the sixties, a German psychoanalyst asked Terrence a question around this. Do we need everyone to do psychedelics in order to address this ex- existential crisis we're facing? And Terrence McKenna essentially said, no, we probably only need about five to 10% of people, uh, to have that experience with high doses. In fact, that's probably when we look at the, the global population, that's probably the extent to which the number of people that can actually hold the complexity that high doses of psychedelics hold, but by only focusing on that five to 10%, there's this sort of, you know, exponential power, this, this fractal power, if you will, of psychedelics that will then lead to all these downstream effects. So um, now how that relates to our, our, our training program is, is, you know, when I've been, that my involvement in this space has always been for the betterment of well people. It's always been on the intersection of psychedelics for leadership, creativity, performance, wellness, largely because of my own um, story within this, but also because it, it acts as a balancing point to the, the sort of, I would call mainstream dialogue and narrative in the psychedelic space, which is around uh, the clinical and medical use to treat certain pathologies, depression, addiction, PTSD, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And what I believe to be true is that for these new systems to come about that I was just talking about, uh, it's not as if we need to fix what's broken, but we need to actually create an entirely new paradigm that simply replaces the old paradigm. So I love the Buckminster Fuller quote, which is something like, don't bother fixing what's broken. Instead, create a new way of being that makes the old way of being obsolete. And I'm paraphrasing, that's not the precise quote, but that's something what Buckminster Fuller said. And so how that relates to the training program is when I started then, we launched this program about a year and a half ago. Um, So in early 2021, and I was doing my initial research on it, I noticed that all of the training programs in psychedelics are therapeutic, clinical, medical use, right? They're all focused on, on sort of fixing what's broken. They're all focused on the application of psychedelics for pathologies. They're all focused on, you know, weaving psychedelics into the more sort of current paradigm. And what I, what, what has always driven and inspired and motivated me is what if we create a program that still handles that, 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 that covers the therapeutic use and that talks about the therapeutic use. It's not leaving it out necessarily. And more importantly, we go into the role of psychedelics for performance, leadership, creativity, awareness, growth, development, the creation of this new paradigm and how psychedelics and this truth of interconnectedness that many of us come to when working with them can inform this new holistic paradigm that we think is necessary to address the existential crisis that we as a, as a human species face. And so then the way I curated, let's say the faculty, the way I built the curriculum was to address that. So even, you know, most of our core faculty, they're MDs, they're clinical psychologists, they're doctors of Chinese medicine, and they've also now been doing executive coaching for five, 10, 15 years. So they both have the clinical healing background to understand the importance of that for transformation. And they themselves recognize the limitations of being within that paradigm. And for that reason, then went into executive coaching to start to work with leaders at a very high level to facilitate this transformation. And so in creating this program, I wanted to create something 
that spoke to that orientation, that spoke to executive coaches, to peak performance coaches, to life coaches, and also to medical doctors and clinicians who want to expand sort of their, their repertoire, if you will. They want to expand their perspective and their orientation. And to really dive deep into A, that the inner work we do ourselves is central and key to the work that we do with clients. So we always start within, we always start with the inner transformation. So the way that even the, 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 the program is organized is it's three months of intense theoretical work where we're getting people to really go deep into how does this apply to their own life and potentially their practice. We have a six-day immersive uh, retreat, immersive experience where we do a microdose, we do a high dose, and we do you know other modalities like a sweat lodge and breath work and you know meditation and, and other practices to deepen that that contemplative awareness. And then we have a practicum on the back end, and that's I think what a lot of these, especially in the psychedelic space, a lot of these programs miss out on is it tends to be a lot of theoretical, but not a lot of applicability, and we've sort of turned that. So we have some theoretical, we have the immersive, and then we're really emphasizing the practicum element. So that way, as you start to learn these skills and this new knowledge, how can you go out and apply it? Because as we talked about today, it's one thing to know it intellectually. It's a whole other thing to embody that experience and that way of being. And so our program really emphasizes uh, that aspect and element as well. So that's, that's I would say, the, the, the reasonably brief overview is um, we've really focused on the both and we've really focused on the non-clinical and non-medical use. We've really focused on how psychedelics can be used for transformation by rooting in what I call the skill of psychedelics. How do we calibrate between the macrodose, the microdose, and these non-psychedelic modalities to facilitate lasting transformation with an understanding that learning the knowledge is important, but what's even more important is doing the work ourselves and then actually having support as we go out and apply that within a coaching container. Yeah, beautiful. I really, I really hope that people listening to this are inspired to come and check you out and join your program. You know, like, and I'm, um, I'm very curious to, I, I'm excited to, as this matures, to hear more and more about the impact of psychedelics and coaching. So, you know, I'm, I'm wholeheartedly behind you guys in this and, um, and just um, actually, what's the website? Where can we find you? So the main website is thethirdwave.co. Um, and then the if people want to check out more information about the coaching certification program, it's thethirdwave.co forward slash coaching dash certification. So um, that's that's sort of the basic fundamentals of it. Um, and then we also have a podcast, which uh, you've been a guest on. If people want to dive deeper into this, it's called uh, The Third Way Podcast. And uh, you know, if anyone else has any specific questions, they can reach out to me directly at paulaustin3w on both Twitter and, and Instagram. And my, my direct messages are open and I'm happy to support in any way that I can. Yeah, great. Well, then just to say thanks again, Paul, and uh, uh, to be continued. To be continued. Thanks so much, Joel, for, for having me on. This is a fun, fun conversation. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.